Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the code word stuff edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, busy reporter the past couple weeks, but happy DC pedestrian, welcoming spring. Spring has returned to our nation's capital. Well, okay, I'm not going to speak too soon. I'm going to jinx it. Yeah, don't jinx us. Yeah, I think we're through the long, bleak winter of certainly my discontent. It'll come back. It'll come back. Don't say it. Don't say it. I'm um, joined this week, as always, by my good friends Tamar Kaufman Wittis, once again globetrotter, Middle East emissary, but you're going away for a short time this time. A very quick trip to Jordan just over the weekend. Jaunt. Yeah. A weekend in Jordan. A jaunt to Jordan. Just a jaunt to Jordan. Just to hang out. <laughs> Are you doing anything, you know, besides just eating good food and just going to Jordan to hang? Uh, going to a conference on Middle East strategy. Because they usually have those in the Middle East. They tend to. Okay, all right then. Well, hopefully you'll have as fun as you did in Israel and bring back some good Jordanian, like, pop... Object country, lessons. Object lessons, like that great band you showed us to last week. I will do my best. Okay. And uh, also here with uh, my good friend Benjamin Wittis. Hey. Once again, manning the homestead in his wife's globetrotting absence. You have some experience with globetrotting, though. Uh, I, I do, although my globetrotting is pretty uniformly less exotic than my wife's. Well, you went to the Philippines... For like 36 hours. Yeah, I, I, I have uh, gone all kinds of places and uh, stayed in hotels and gone to conferences at them. <laughs> yes, many, many fine hotels and lovely places. <laughs> Such as Think Tank Globetrotting. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right, this week on the show, David Petraeus, oh, how the mighty have fallen. David Petraeus cops a plea deal after giving highly classified information to his mistress CIA Director John Brennan proposes big changes in the way the spy agency is run, and a new census of ISIS's social media campaign, plus, in our object lesson segment, Gargoyles and the Rational Security Chainsaw Massacre. Ben, why don't we start with um, men behaving very badly? Let's talk about David Petraeus and this rather extraordinary uh, plea deal. Well, the plea deal, the details in the arrangement, I think. Are right. Yeah, so the plea deal, uh, I think, is is... Frankly, given the conduct described in the factual basis, the plea deal is pretty generous. Um, He walks away with a misdemeanor uh, and a fine and presumably no jail time. Um, But the details that he admits to, I, in a town where I consider myself pretty immune from shock, I have to say I found pretty shocking. And... um, so what we had known previously was that he, you know, seemed to have given some classified information to his biographer with whom he was also having an affair. But what we did not know was that the classified information in question were a number of notebooks full of uh, personal handwritten by him. They were sort of his personal stuff. And they, the document describes them as collectively containing classified information regarding the identities of covert officers, war strategy, intelligence capabilities and mechanisms, 
diplomatic discussions, quotes and deliberative discussions from high-level National Security Council meetings, and defendant David Howell Petraeus's discussions with the President of the United States. Yikes. Um, <laughs> right. But then, um, so then, you know, you say, well, maybe it was sort of an accident, and he didn't, you know, mean to disclose code word classified yeah. intelligence about the um, his conversations with the president and intelligence officers' identities with his girlfriend. But then there's this quotation from um, that's sort of set out in dry um, in the text of the of the agreement, and it reads as follows: Biographer. By the way, where are your black books? We never went through Petraeus. Oh, they're in a rucksack up there somewhere. Biographer. Okay, you avoiding that? You gonna look through them first? Petraeus. Um, well, they're really, I mean, they are highly classified, some of them. Uh, they don't have it on it, but I mean, there's code word stuff in there. So, you know, stuff. sort of code word code stuff. Code word stuff. So, you, you know, know, that stuff. So to make it kind of worse as a preliminary matter, he kind of knows what's in these documents and that it's really sensitive. And then the final kind of coup de grace that made me sort of saying, hey, this is kind of shocking, is that he then lies to the FBI about it in his CIA office um, while he's, uh, uh, you know, head of the CIA. Maybe and that just tells us something about how the head of the CIA thinks about the FBI. Well, I, mean, well, I think it definitely tells us something about that. Maybe, but I think it also tells us something about the self-protective instinct. Yeah. Um, and, you know, while I'm not sympathetic to the idea that this is, you know, similar, as some people have said, to Edward Snowden or to, you know, sort of the malicious leaker, I do think it uh, raises the question, honestly, when you put it all together, as to whether he has gotten a, a better deal here than the conduct in question really warrants. And I, and I think there's something to be said for the idea that he did. And this is something I agree with you that came up as soon as I was actually reading this this deal and talking with people about it, if he had been a mid-level CIA or even a senior CIA officer, somebody whose name you've never heard of, um, you know, who had been an assistant to the assistant director kind of level person, he would be facing a prison sentence. There is absolutely no question in my mind about that. He would be spending years in a prison cell for doing this. And if he had still been in uniform when this yes, was being investigated. He would have been court-martialed. Yeah, I mean, it is just, it's such an egregious breach of... It would be one thing if they were his personal black books that contain memoirs and observations and reflections and things like this, but to have code word stuff. I mean, operational, names of agents, names of programs, these are the things that when journalists are reporting on classified information, the government pulls out and says, under no circumstances must you ever publish this information because it could get people killed. Right. Right. And, and, and he, you know, leaks are often justified in the name of accountability for government or policy disagreements. Um, but this had nothing to do right. with, with policy. This was, um, to ensure he got a good story told about himself. Right. And, let, and let's be clear, he's giving away secrets to the person he's schnooping, right? I mean, he is sleeping with this woman and giving her highly classified information. 
in order to inflate his own narrative. Well, you know, it's a risky move to have an affair with your biographer, because it could end very well or very badly for you. In this case, option B. (laughs) So, I, I mean, I guess part of what fascinates me about this question is if we if we all agree that he got a great a really good deal given the circumstances because of who he is and his military career and history i i think it's a really interesting question how much should that stuff be worth Can I mean, I, well is it that he got a good deal just because of that record oftentimes in espionage cases or leak cases, people would get a good deal if they cooperate in recovering and, and telling folks what they gave away. Did that happen here? Well, so, at the, look, I mean, at the beginning, he actively seems right. to have lied to the FBI about it. So I think and there clearly came a point where he cooperated and became, you know, um, as, as they say in the biz, in a more compliant posture. Um, but I... I don't think it's a story of, oh my God, I made a terrible mistake here, let me help you recover everything. I do think mitigating it somewhat was the fact that there doesn't appear to have been any damage. There's no evidence that any of this stuff got out. It was all recovered. Um, on the other hand, I think you look at this and you say, I, I mean, I certainly agree with Shane, in a normal plea situation, uh the plea is to a felony, not a misdemeanor. And um, the only, I don't know of a lot of exceptions to that, except for very senior level people like, you know, um, I forget whether it was Sandy Berger or John Deutsch who had to, who had to plea to something, but they, it was a similar deal. And, you know, so I, I, but then I asked, well, okay, how much should it be worth that he's an American hero with a long, long service record of, you know, sort of service to his country? And is that merely a factor in sentencing or should prosecutors figure that into the structure of the deal itself? And I, I think that's kind of an interesting spiritual question that I don't really have I don't really know how to how to hypothesize an answer. And to. Would, would the logic for that be that if we were to watch this once revered general who led the CIA have to go to prison, it would be demoralizing, or no? Or we I'm, should like take into account all the good things he's done for the country. I, I think the logic of it is, you know, screwing up in a non-malicious fashion in the course of great service to your country is profoundly different from screwing up in a malicious fashion in a, in a means that betrays your country, right? And, and that... He didn't mean to do any harm, but as is clear from what you read, Ben, he did knowingly risk this information. He did mean to provide highly classified information to somebody who was not authorized to receive it. He just didn't mean to do any harm by it. Correct. And I think, you know, to, to be fair to the people who would make the other side of this argument, with whom I'm not unsympathetic, I, I think you can argue the same about a lot of leakers, that, you know, in their harm conception, they're doing good. The, the good that they do with the leak outweighs the harm, right? And so I, I, I think it's pretty hard to defend at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I... I, I, I... Look, I mean, just from the standpoint of a journalist who talks with people like Petraeus, and, you know, we all want them to tell us things. And Petraeus was known when he was in Iraq for being, I think, rather loose with classification rules and letting journalists 
sit in on briefings on the you know on the condition that they not write about them. But it just does send me to me that there seems to me that there's a a horrible double standard at play here. I mean, there's we're, this is a time also when this administration, as we said before, has gone after more officials for leaking, and I'm sure leaking in ways that they felt was to the benefit of the country and doing the right thing. Um, <clears throat> and here's somebody who actively did it too, and he's receiving nothing of this of this in the way of the same scrutiny or punishment as any of his former colleagues. Although he certainly is getting a lot more public scrutiny. That's true. And I guess one question, too, is, like, what does this do now to David Petraeus in the sort of the, the post-government life in which he is, and has made, frankly, no secrets about this, is making a lot of money as an advisor to KKR and as somebody on the public speaking circuit? Does this damage him in some way? If he loses his security clearances, I'm not sure how much that matters because I don't know what the work he's doing now depends on that. But, you know, is he kind of damaged goods at this point? I don't know. I think, generally speaking, having your name in the newspaper probably ups your lecture fee, whether your name is there for good reasons or bad. Yeah. I think he's, uh, the circumstances of a misdemeanor plea are almost never ruining. Um, and I think he will come out of this, uh, not unscathed, but, um, but not severely damaged. And, um, and query whether, given what have happened to some other people who've done, you know, leaks of significant magnitude, whether that's, that's fair. And you could say, well, what's, what's unfair is that he's not more damaged than he's going to be, or that they are as damaged as they're going to be, but it does seem kind of inequitable. Oi, okay. Code word stuff. Gets you into trouble every time. Especially in the code word stuff edition. Sure it does. Uh, Tamara, uh, there is a new ISIS Twitter census uh, that is out, is coming out? It is out. It is out. It it was released over the weekend. And, um, you know, a tiny bit of self-promotion here, because this is a paper published by my Center for Middle East Policy at, at Brookings, specifically our project on U.S. relations with the Islamic world. And this is... um. The, the first really comprehensive effort to identify and do demographic and other content analysis on Twitter accounts used by ISIS supporters around the world. And it, it really just focuses in um, on a fairly brief period of time last year as a kind of a case study. But I think it's, it's very good um, to read this in line with the spate of articles that we've read recently about ISIS's recruiting tactics how is it that they manage to appeal to, you know, middle class people in the U.S. or in Europe and get them to want to go off and, and fight in Syria and Iraq? Um, what the census does is uh, it identifies a range. We, we still don't know exactly how many confirmed ISIS supporters are on Twitter, but it's somewhere between 46,000 and 70,000 accounts, which is just a massive number. And to keep John Carlin busy at the Justice Department. Yeah, right. So on the one hand, you can say that there's just a huge number of accounts. On the other hand, if you look at the way they interact with Twitter and with one another, most of them have, you know, around a thousand followers, which is more than the average Twitter that's, user, that's, yeah. but way, way less than, say, John Legend. Yes. <laughs> um, or now, President Obama. Crisis, forget it. Yeah, then we're in big trouble. And so content-wise, in terms of um, the proportion of Twitter content that comes from ISIS, it's, you know, hundredths of a percent of what's on Twitter. 
Um, at the same time, there's a lot out there, and these guys create a kind of echo chamber. They're all following each other. But one of the things the study shows is that the vast majority of the ISIS-supporting content is generated by a subset of accounts that are kind of a highly disciplined, message-focused core. These guys mm -hmm. know what they're doing. They are tweeting out the same content um, repeatedly in very high-volume bursts. I mean, they're acting just like a, a sort of um, Manhattan advertising firm would want you to operate your social media campaign. Uh, and so it's no wonder that they're having an effect on the people that they are trying to influence, which are potential recruits. And, you know, it, the other... We, maybe we can get them to help us with the rational security Twitter. For <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm not sure I want to start tweeting at ISIS accounts. And, and one reason is that Twitter is actually paying a lot more attention yeah, to these accounts. Are. They came under criticism, as I think you both know for not doing enough to shut down Twitter accounts. And this study found that since last fall, they've shut down at least a 1,000 accounts, and they say far more than that. So, um, and, and one effect of that may be that it's harder for this echo chamber effect to break out beyond that circle of, of ISIS supporters who are already talking to each other. The more they can shut down some of the more active accounts, the more they can kind of box this group of people in on social media, and that's important. So, what, actually, we also know that one of the <clears throat> one of the authors, the report, J.M. Berger, I guess, is is kind of like a go-to guy for analysis on this stuff. And I mean, a lot of journalists, myself included, have talked to him. I mean, one thing I wonder is, you know, we we, we it's kind of become just a a bullet point in the ISIS conversation of like their uh, unbelievable use of social media, their highly sophisticated use of social media. It's kind of become boilerplate. Does this study find that, in fact, yes, that is true? That, I mean, they are more sophisticated and they're using it to greater effect than, and maybe you didn't look at this comparison, but then say, you know, other organizations that are trying to push a brand or so. Does it kind of come to some qualitative conclusion about how good they are in the world of self-promotion and message discipline and achieving your objectives through social and all those kinds of things? Yeah, no, I, I don't think that this paper really gets to that level of impact analysis. This is really trying to just understand the landscape yeah, of ISIS supporters. Yeah, which we had information about before this came along. That's, right. that's right. And so I think, you know, it shows, for example, the, the sharp and swift increase in ISIS's Twitter presence just over the last year. They've more than tripled their Twitter presence. Um, it shows us, you know, what languages they identify as their primary language, where they say they're located. What is their primary? Is it Arabic? It is Arabic. Three quarters of their Twitter users selected Arabic as their primary language, oh. but 20% selected English. Um, and if you look at the locations that they claim to be in, in their Twitter profile, which of course they may not be telling the truth, um, the vast majority of them are in the Arab world, uh, but there is a significant number in the U.S. and in the U.K., so um, among non-Middle non Eastern locations. So Carlin has some people to go after. That's true. John Carlin, who, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is saying he will prosecute people who are proliferating, I think was the word offered up in the Q&A. Uh, I see social media people. And I guess those proliferators would be, in effect, the core... Kind yes. of influencers at the, at the sort of the root of this whole social media system. <clears throat> you guys identify in the report. Absolutely. And, you know, there was a, a really interesting piece in the Washington Post a week or so ago interviewing a, a D.C. area imam at a local mosque about 
the recruiting efforts, um, you know, that he's trying to counter. And he said, you know, there have been a couple of teenagers whose parents have sent them to him for counter-radicalization effort. And he said he'll spend an hour or two hours with these kids, but the ISIS folks online are there when these kids wake up in the morning. They're bombarding them with messages. They're there all night long. They just go after them, and they don't stop. Yeah. Do you guys think, I mean, I don't have children, so this is a question for, for parents, I guess. I mean, do you do do you find that just, maybe not even with your own kids, but other kids in general, I mean, that you are, in fact, having to compete with them for messages that they're getting through social media. I mean, when I was growing up, it was always their parents saying, well, you can't compete with what you're seeing on TV. I personally never found that. I mean, I felt like the, the morals and the values my parents instilled in me took root more than things I was watching on sitcoms or whatever. But I don't know if social is well, somehow different because it is, it's more pervasive. It is different because it's interactive. Yeah. And it's also different because the messaging is often coming to you from your friends. Um, and so it has the quality not just of TV, which is, you know, broadcasting messaging that somebody other than parents thought of, or schools, but it's, but the mechanism of broadcast has a lot to do with larger, uh, you know, social, um, pressures that, that teenagers feel vis-a-vis each other. Um, I think it, I think it, it does, it is hard to compete with a social ambience, social media ambience, and people who, uh, you know, who in that period of alienation in the teen years, I think for some, a lot of people it's probably particularly difficult. I think there's another dimension as well, which is when you talk to people, you know, people that I know in the Muslim American community, for example, who work on counter-radicalization campaigns in the community, what they say is that the way these ISIS supporters interact with teens online, they're grooming them. Mm-hmm. Just the way sexual predators groom victims. Mm-hmm. And the thing about social media is that it allows kids and everybody else, frankly, to identify themselves very quickly by, you know, the way they want to be identified or if they have a particular need or a particular concern. The internet has all these little niches where people can go out self-identify. And that makes the, the recruiter's tool so much easier. You can find the more vulnerable kids by going to the right place on the Internet and hanging out there and then engaging them. And so you f- they identify themselves in a way as open to, to recruitment or to persuasion. And then once you get your hooks in them, uh, you don't let go. Yeah, I, that's fascinating. I never thought about it in that predatory aspect, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Uh, so my wordplay is uh, CIA Director John Brennan's big plan unveiled last week to uh, reform the CIA. This is being called the most fundamental, important reorganization of our most storied intelligence agency uh, since its creation, really, uh, in the late 1940s. Um, so basically there are a couple of key points here that I think are worth mentioning. Um, the, the there was a, there was some a big hubbub and concern over whether or not the agency was going to do away with its traditional structure of having directorates. We had a directorate of intelligence which does analysis. We had a national clandestine service which does operations. Those are all staying in place, and in fact, they're adding a new directorate to focus on cyber uh, issues in particular. So there's a little bit of that maintenance of the current structure. Um, but there's going to be this creation of what he's calling mission centers. There's going to be reportedly 10 of these. And these are basically going to be centers that combine employees from across the CIA, from the ranks of those analysts 
those operators, those tech specialists, to sort of attack one problem or attack one geographic area. And the model for this is the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, which a lot of people think um, was really successful. Uh, what's interesting to me about this is that I, I think this is kind of going to be John Brennan's legacy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it didn't get a lot of coverage. You don't, you don't think the legacy is going to be improved relations with Congress? Oh, well, there's that too. <laughs> Counterterrorism in guess, Yemen? Come on. I guess I should probably say like, this is what John Brennan hopes will be. Um, but it really is, I mean, I think we kind of, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether this is going to actually go into effect. I should say that the memo that he put out to the workforce I mean, reads like a case study in like cliched management gobbledygook speak. It is almost impenetrable, maybe by design. Um, but when you really, you know, when you do the reporting and you listen to what they're really saying and all that, what comes clear is that there is going to be this fundamental new way of thinking for the CIA about how they go out and tackle these problems. And what I thought was really, also really, really interesting is there is a focus on preemption. In fact, all these centers are going to be led by new assistant directors, which is a big deal in and of itself for somebody of that rank. New career paths. New career paths. And in fact, this is that you can see in the document. This is this is. It's basically like the military's emphasis on joint service. That if you want to get ahead in the CIA, you're going to have to do lots of different things and be a specialist in lots of things. Um, but these new assistant directors running these centers are going to be judged by how well they are quote quote Brennan consistently preempting threats and furthering U.S. national security objectives with the best possible information technology analysis and operations. That's really important and interesting that you're going to start judging people at this level for how consistently they preempt threats. And the whole center model is actually very much geared towards that, right? It's sort of like taking the day's news and what's happening that moment and trying to understand that crisis to stop the next one. It's not the sort of the longer-term more analytic, more strategic. And a lot of people are concerned about this new plan, thinking that it's getting the CIA away from that. That remains to be seen, too. But this seems to me like a really a big deal, and, and one that is rife with a lot of potential for friction as well, <laughs> So internally. One of the things about these massive reorganizations is that it's very hard to know prospectively whether they're big deals or nothing burgers. So you think about the uh, combatant command reform of the military, you know, uh, which was huge and which fundamentally changed inter-service relations in a very, very deep way. And I don't think I would have, looking forward at that, thought that was more than a bunch of bureaucraties. On the other hand, you look at the creation of the DNI's office, or for that matter, the de creation of the Department of Homeland Security, and you say, did this fundamentally change American security operations or the operations of the constituent agencies? And I think probably what the DNI's office did more than anything was to put an additional layer of bureaucracy in it's very hard to identify things that operate profoundly differently from it. And so I, I, I always wonder when I see these, you know, great reorganizations, is this a, is this important if you're in the bureaucracy and not important otherwise? Is it profoundly important in general or is it neither? And it's a different organizational chart that'll function the same way. Wow. You know, I, I have to say, 
yes, it's hard to know in advance, but just reading about this move and reading Brennan's words, it's clear that there's a vision of what intelligence is for, what its role is in the policy process, that is very, very different from the traditional role. And so it's cutting against not just organizational culture, particularly in the in the analysis part of the CIA, where they have a very strong culture of independence, going where the facts lead, not going where you're not sure that the facts lead, um, rigorous peer review, you know, standing apart from whatever the operational mission is. All of that is going to be countered by this new approach. And so there's going to be a culture clash. But in addition to that, it's saying that the role of intelligence is not strategic. It's tactical. It's about threat interdiction or threat preemption. And, you know, I think part of the criticism of the counterterrorism center model is that it does tend to make analysis much more um, mission driven, so much more short term. But also it, the worry among analysts, and I think there's something to be said for this, is that if you are if you're put in a position where you're tasked and evaluated on the basis of providing intelligence against a particular mission, then number one, you don't tell people what they don't know, context, uh, or things that might counter the premises of the mission. Um, and you also don't have a chance to think about how do we change the whole game mm-hmm. and not just succeed at this particular thing. And I, and I think that's, that's, that, that's, that's sort of like one of the big kind of red caution flags, right, in all of this. And there's something that I thought he mentioned towards the end of his memo that maybe he's going to get towards this, but what I see is potentially a big friction. These assistant directors who are going to run these centers, he says, will work closely with the directorate heads. So the person running the director of operations, which, by the way, they're going back to that name, the director of intelligence, which will now be the director of analysis. And it says those directorate heads will retain overall responsibility and accountability for the delivery of excellence and their respective occupations across all of the centers. Which just seems to me like a recipe for, I'm sorry, delivery of excellence? Well, if I don't think my deli- <laughs> definition of excellence is what yours is, well, does that I, mean I'm not going to task you the I mean, now at the CIA uh, mess, you can, you can order a plate of excellence. Oh, yes. <laughs> you can have it delivered to your office yeah. by a drone. <laughs> but don't give them your last name for the order. Um, it remains to be seen how this is actually going to play out. In fact, it's interesting. I thought the coverage of it last week was fairly like, okay, this happened. We knew it was happening. Um, but now there's going to be, you know, weeks and months of the sort of how does this happen and the, the friction that will go along with it. The director of operations chief already resigned in part over the, well, I should say abruptly retired, I think mm. is the language that we all chose to settle on. Um, so, but yeah, this is going to be uh, potentially a big deal for the CIA. It'll be very interesting to see how it uh, plays in the CIA's uh, relationship with its oversight uh, committees. Yeah, yeah. particularly if they become even more operational than they already are. You know, there's a dimension of this that I didn't see in any of the stories, probably because we simply don't have the information, which is, you know, to what extent oversight logic and, by extension, budget logic is driving some of this. Um, I know from my own time in government, you have to go and convince your appropriators every single year that your mission remains worth funding at the level you want it to be funded at. And so there's a premium put on near-term results because of that annual review process. And I think that even though the intelligence community's budget is not not public, they still have that same dialogue with their overseers. And, you know, this seems to me much more the kind of um, 
the kind, it's driving at the kind of results that you can sell to Congress yeah. and justify your budget numbers. And, with. I, and I think if the focus is on promotion through preemption, you're going to find a lot more cases of people offering laughable cases of preemption. Like, oh, I preempted this massive hack against country X because, you know, I found information on a hacker in well, Pacepin. Well, maybe, maybe they can they can preempt their directors giving code word classified ah, to their mistresses. Yes. Yes. Code word stuff. They can just ban the black books. They could. It gives black book a whole new meaning. Yeah. Mm. Sure does. All right, let's go to object lessons. Um, tomorrow, why don't you start? What did you bring for show and tell today? Okay, well, um, I'm holding up this lovely framed quotation, uh, which I think is familiar to a lot of folks in Washington. It's a very popular one. Um, it's uh, just get a friend, get a dog. You want a friend in Washington? Get a dog. No, no, it's not quite that Washington. It's a little more earnest than that. It's a quote from uh, Teddy Roosevelt's speech uh, in Paris, France, in 1910. The speech is entitled Citizenship in a Republic, and it's often known as the man in the arena speech, mm. uh, where he says it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by de- dust and sweat and blood, um, who knows great enthusiasms, great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails at least fails while daring greatly. That's a, a, a brief summary. But um, I brought this today because, uh, for me, this is the third anniversary of my return to Brookings after my, uh, my time in the State Department. And this framed quotation from Theodore Roosevelt was a parting gift to me from some of my colleagues at the department. Um, and, you know, we, we have a lot of discussion in Washington about the revolving door and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that people can come in and out of government. But I think that, um, for me, while I was in the State Department, waging battles not only bureaucratic, but lofty policy battles as well, I, I assure you, um, this was a quote that I always had in the front of my mind and, and actually taped on my wall. And uh, and even though I'm out here in the ivory tower to some extent now, it's a good reminder to me of what everything we do, those of us immediately in government, but also in the policy environment around government, what it's all about, which is um, trying to make change, that it's hard, it's messy, people screw up, they don't always win, um, but it's important to keep trying. So. And, and be in the arena. And be in the arena. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Uh, ben. Your object. Well, I am, as you can see, oh, holding a chainsaw. Ben, um, I can't believe you brought that. Um, I I um, brought this actually. We have to dive his talk with Sandra at security downstairs. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I I brought the chainsaw because uh, Tamara the other day when we were talking about getting my my uh, uh, staff through TSA security reminded me that this was not the first time I had brought what seemed like a prohibited object through a security checkpoint. Oh, so I see. You're, you're a repeat offender. Oh, well, so, you know, unlike the staff, which I did on purpose, I did not intentionally bring a chainsaw onto Fort McNair. Um, <laughs> but I had, I, so we have a wood stove at home, and I cut a lot of wood. So I, I had this chainsaw, and I had it in my trunk, and I was driving onto Fort McNair, and... You get to the checkpoint and the MPs, you know, 
shine mirrors under the car and they look, they, you know, asked to look through the car. And then they asked me to pop the trunk. And as I am popping the trunk, I suddenly remember that I have this chainsaw in the trunk. And so here's the question, Shane. Tamara knows the answer to this already. What does the MP at the security checkpoint at Fort McNair say to you when he sees a chainsaw in your trunk that you are driving onto base? Where are you hiding the heads? Nope. Got to put that through the x-ray? No, but you're getting closer. He says, nice chainsaw, sir. (laughs) Of course he does. And that was the most (laughs) surprising... um, Wait, did he let you on with it? Yes. Oh, my God. We had a very brief conversation about the chainsaw, but more about like what kind of chainsaw it was and how powerful it was then how many cords you cut with it yeah exactly um, you know i'm sure that oh base God. access regulations page 36 paragraph 6 stroke b does not say that chainsaws are disallowed exactly i think you know chainsaws they have a limited history of problems with people bringing chainsaws onto base so they just didn't know what to do with you and they're like oh. no i think it was more that you know he it was not on the list of items that they needed to worry about, and he liked it. Was a, it was a nice-looking chainsaw, so well, he complimented me on it. So that's uh, that's my object lesson. You could have been doing physical maintenance as well. Nice chainsaw, sir. Nice chainsaw, sir. Well, indeed. Okay, I'm gonna. If I had a car, I'd put chainsaws in it too. Um, okay, this is my object here. You can see this is a gargoyle. It is a gargoyle. It's a thinking gargoyle. It's kind of like a thinking gargoyle, isn't it? Or he just looks like pleasantly surprised, his hands on his cheeks. Um, this gargoyle has actually sat on my desk and or printer for, God, the past, I don't even know, here you can hold it up for a photograph. <laughs> uh, for the past like 20 years or so. Um, actually, I, I was, I was, I was, I was looking at it as I do every day on my desk. There is a, a security story behind gargoyles. There's actually two of them. Um, so gargoyles were largely put up, and not just in medieval times, but even going back, I think, to the Egyptians and the Greeks. Um, to get water off of roofs safely and push them away from walls. So the guard, the water hits the roof and it goes out the mouth of the gargoyle and it looks like it's spitting water and that sort of like sheds water at the top of the building. Uh, which seems like a highly efficient, very good thing for buildings. They're lovely to look at. Um, why don't we have gargoyles though on buildings anymore? Like if they're this good and they were around since the time of the Egyptians, why don't people use gargoyles anymore? We're into rain gardens now. We're into rain gardens. That, that's kind of part of it. Well, as it turns out, in 1724, the London Building Act was passed by the Parliament in Great Britain and made the use of downpipes compulsory on all new construction because gargoyles were A, scaring people, and B, falling off of buildings and hitting things and people. So this thing that was developed as a security feature actually started becoming a security (laughs) risk. And because people were getting hit in the head by gargoyles every now and then, we had to give up these beautiful, lovely, highly efficient security systems that had been around with us for thousands of years, thanks to the London Building Act. Yeah. Bureaucracy at work. You know, there's that apartment building up on Connecticut Avenue in Calorama that has... Gargoyles on the top of little guys with balls held over their heads as oh. though they're going to pitch them down onto That's the street. That's where it comes from. 
It, it was probably a protest against the probably London was. building law. And I'm sorry, but we can build gargoyles that don't fall off of buildings now. I think, I think At we least should not start, until an earthquake. start yes. the, the, the rational security. That's an example, by the way, of irrational security. That is irrational yeah. security. Um, banning exactly. gargoyles. Fighting the last war. It's not have to right. Thank you. Don't, so they're we not going to do it in London, that's for sure. Bring back gargoyles, guys. Bring back gargoyles. Yeah. Bring them back. Find them. Put them in your house. I am. All right. That's the end of our show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find more of our great podcasts at our website, SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com, including the latest episode of The Chess Clock Debates, Exploring Deep Wilderness with John Turk, and our newest podcast, Ask a Scientist. You can also follow Rational Security on Twitter at RATL Security. Tell your friends, please spread the word about our show on social media, and please leave us a review wherever you download the podcast. It's the best way to let people know about the show and to tell us what you like and what you don't like. Our editor of the podcast is Jen Howell. Our music is performed by David Petraeus and the Code Word Stuffers. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe next week. Maybe next week we'll ask them. This week our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan pushing out her dulcet tunes from the enigmatic confines of Hong Kong, like one Edward Snowden. On behalf of Benjamin Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.